Let's open the precious Word of God to Romans, the first chapter. Romans chapter 1. A couple of months ago, we commenced our study of this epistle, and we conclude the first chapter today, the Lord willing. I read to you verses 28 through 32. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Amen and amen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord to us today. Romans chapter 1, the first seven verses, are a salutation by the Apostle Paul to the saints at Rome. Verses 8 through 15 are his introduction to the epistle and what he intends to accomplish when he visits Rome. Verses 16 and 17 are a summary of the gospel as it presents the power of God in Christ Jesus to Jews and Gentiles laid hold of by faith and the righteousness of Jesus Christ that clothes the elect in those two verses. Beginning at verse 18, the apostle enters upon his first argument of the book, and it runs all the way to the 21st verse, the 20th verse of the third chapter, and his argument is this. The whole human race is utterly condemned by every measure of the revelation that God has given them. They are in desperate need of a Savior to intervene on their behalf, and by His righteousness deliver them from the condemnation that they so justly deserve. And He is going to take us apart as a race, the human race, by the creation, by conscience, by providence, by revelation in the Scriptures. We have sinned against them all. And so we need a Savior. We are not troubled with Jewish legalists, as the Roman saints were. And so the primary lesson which is what I just stated, is not as crucial to us because we already know it. So we will spend some time to draw from this list of 23 indictments and crimes that I just read some instruction and warning and rebuke to our hearts that we might examine ourselves to see where we're still guilty of some of these things and that we might be free from them. Because someone who's been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ ought not to have these sins still in their lives. We're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ this way. He faced the temptation to sin in all 23 areas. But he didn't sin. And in the sight of God, because he died for me, and his perfect righteousness was transferred to my account, God sees me as an obedient child to my parents, which I was not. God sees me as never having backbit, even though I have. God sees me in his perfect righteousness, because Jesus Christ lived perfectly in all 23 areas, and I have His righteousness clothing me. No wonder we sang that we have a solid rock for our faith, because we are dressed in His righteousness alone in the song, The Solid Rock. I want you to see the Lord Jesus Christ in the fact that why He had to live a miserable life, and why He had to die a terrible death, 
was to pay for your 23 offenses by this measure and description in the last five verses of Romans chapter 1. Glory. Glory, what a Savior we have. He lived perfectly so that I could have His perfect righteousness by 23 counts, and He died willingly to take upon Him the guilt of my sins, and God forsook even His beloved Son when Jesus had on Him the guilt and the, of my sins in those 23 measures. We're going to examine for these sins in our lives. I could preach 23 sermons, and if you don't think so, these words open up entire studies in the Bible of these crimes. But I'm not going to. We're going to finish the chapter today, and I will not be long. I want you to humble yourself before the God of heaven. If you want to consider more about some of these sins, I'll remind you of a series I preached several years ago. I believe about eight sermons in length entitled, Forgotten Sins. They are sins that are no longer mentioned in public places. Children are not taught them by their parents, nor do teachers teach them in school like they once did. They're not enforced against by the civil authorities. They're forgotten sins. But they're not forgotten in the mind of God. He still examines this world with the same eyes and by the same standard of holiness that he's always examined it. And so we need to remind ourselves. And so the list has practical profit for us in addition to its doctrinal proof that we need a Savior. Verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over. The Lord God of heaven is so holy and righteous that he wants to tell you for the third time that there is a reason that he is giving men over to their sinfulness. He is careful to defend his integrity and his righteousness in this matter. And so he repeats it again in this verse. He has stated it already in verse 24. That God gave them up. He, he's, he wants us to know that He is sovereign and He's able to give men up. In verse 24, He gave them up. In verse 26, He gave them up. In verse 28, He gave them over. But He tells us why. In verses 18 through 23, it's very plain. They held the truth in unrighteousness. It was the truth of creation. When you go outside and you look at the sky on a starry night and see how far those stars are away and how immense the universe is, you are made very small and you know there is a very great creator. But when you don't give that creator the glory that is due his name and you do not thank him for the things he has given you in your life, he considers that a very rebellious and presumptuous sin against him and so he judges you. So in verses 18 through 23, he condemns idolatry. He condemns understanding him from the creation and not doing something with that knowledge. It should change your life. So he's explaining why he gives men over. He says three times that he does give them over, 24, 26, and 28. But then he says three times why he's doing it. 18 through 23, they rejected the knowledge of creation. They adopted idolatry. They made up a new religion. We don't want to worship a creator. We're going to make ourselves a little statue, a little Buddha, a little Vishnu of the Hindus, a little totem pole of the American Indians. We're going to make ourselves a little idol and we're going to worship it instead. And this is what those verses are about. And because men did that, God judges them. He describes their sin in verses 18 through 23, which I'm referring to right now. Then he describes their sin again in verse 25, who changed the truth of God into a lie. You look at the creation, and you know that your little idol didn't make the heavens and the earth. You know that. But you go ahead and worship it anyway. They change the truth of God into a lie and worship and serve the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And then, verse 28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, whatever thoughts they had about God, whatever understanding they did have, and God said they did because He made it plain by His creation, they didn't retain it. I don't want to remember that. Forget that. I don't want to hear more about that. I don't want to go to church to hear that. I don't want to read the Bible to hear that. Don't talk to me about God. They did not retain God in their knowledge. Three times he mentions their crime. Three times he mentions the punishment. God gave them over to a reprobate mind. The general character of the wicked is described in Psalm 10 and verse 4. God is not in all his thoughts. 
All he can think about is himself. God is not in all his thoughts. That's what the Bible tells us about the character of our race. They did not like to retain God in their knowledge. It doesn't say they could not retain God in their knowledge. It says they did not like to do so. Do you know what it says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 10? Because they did not receive the blank of the truth. They did not receive the love of the truth. They didn't love the truth. They didn't like to retain God in their knowledge. They should have. They should have kept every little bit that they realized about Him and asked for more because He would have shown it to them. But instead, they wanted to get rid of it, as I've already illustrated in their wicked language. Brethren, we should be so different. We want to retain God in our knowledge and do everything to the glory of God. Whether therefore we eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 That's the way we should be so different as His children. God gave them over to a reprobate mind. When God gives you over to a reprobate mind, it is over for you unless He rescues that reprobate mind. He's able. He's done it before. He'll do it again. But when He gives you over, He can rewire you. You'll do things you'd never thought you would do, and no one else thinks you should do. A reprobate mind, a rejected or condemned mind is worthless, inferior, impure, a depraved mind, degraded mind, morally corrupt, rejected by God, lost and hardened in sin, of abandoned character, lost to all sense of religious or moral obligation, unprincipled. No more consciousness of righteousness. No more consciousness of right. Just lost. He gives us over to a reprobate mind as a race when we rebel against the knowledge that He gives. Lord, help us. We want to be retainers of knowledge. And I'm not talking about the stars and the sun and the moon. I'm talking about a level of knowledge we've been given far beyond that. The Word of God. We better retain this. Remember this. How many times in the book of Proverbs do we read the words, My son, remember what I've taught you. Retain my commandments and live. What had happened to the Corinthians? Paul said about the gospel to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 2, By which also you're saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you. You forget what's been preached, someone will be able to lead your soul astray. Lord, help us. God gives them over to a reprobate mind, a rejected, depraved, ungodly, wicked, perverse, rebellious mind. Since they didn't like to consider God, they resented Him. He's perfectly just to leave them to their depraved lusts after they've rejected Him and to give them over to their sins. The sins that we're about to list in verses 29 down through 31, these 23 crimes... They're true of the depraved nature of Adam. However, God turns men over to them more so that they're full of those things. It's a, it's a, it's a progression of depravity in the human race. Because this is what the Word of God teaches. He gives them over to a reprobate mind, and the reprobate mind is pointing forward to the inconvenient things in verses 29 through 31. Because that's the sentence. It's not pointing backward. The inconvenient, reprobate mind and their actions is described by being filled with 23 things that are as inconvenient as sodomy. It's just because you would like to justify yourself this morning that you tend to think sodomy in verses 24 through 27. That's the inconvenient sin. That's being given over to a reprobate mind. All these other things are just as inconvenient. I'll show you. By God's grace, I'll show you. God is perfectly holy in doing this. And brethren, these words are not preached anymore. Men do not tremble before the word of God like they should. God can give you over to a reprobate mind. You'll do anything. You are capable of any sin, and you are capable of any sin with gleeful joy and lustful greed. If God turns you over to a reprobate mind. Therefore, we ought to retain the knowledge of God that He gives us by whatever means. Lord, help us to remember. Convenient. To do those things which are not convenient is the last part of verse 28. Convenient is agreeing with 
or consonant to nature. Appropriate, suitable, fitting conduct. To be inconvenient is to do things that are not suitable, fitting, or appropriate or proper. Convenient means in accordance with or keeping with, befitting or becoming a person or a thing. It's suitable, it's appropriate. So when we say inconvenient, it's doing things that are not suitable, not appropriate, not profitable, not good, not helpful. Inconvenient. They're not according to nature. They're contrary to natural thinking and reasoning. God gives men over so that they don't even have the natural restraint that they ought to have. Nature teaches things. Men have a conscience. And if if you've been taught, or if I've ever hinted, or if I've ever taught that men don't have a conscience, we've missed the boat. Because they know. Otherwise, you don't have any way of interpreting the 32nd verse. Because it says, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death. Now, how in the world do they know that? They know it by the candle of the Lord, which is the little bit of light. That's why it's called a candle. It's not called the sunshine of the Lord. It's a little candle that's in every man that tells them some level of knowledge of God's hatred of sin. So the verse 32 is true. And it's reflected in all their laws. The men at the nations of the world do not have laws that look like Christian laws or biblical laws because they read the Bible. The Bible says specifically in Psalm 147 verses 19 and 20, they did not have the Bible. But it tells us right here they had something else. They had an inner awareness that certain things are wrong. All nations have punished murderers with murder. For the most part, the exceptions prove the rule. How did they know that? Well, they read Genesis chapter 8 and 9. No, they never had it. How'd they read it? How, tell me how they read it. First of all, Genesis chapter 9 was written by Moses. 3,000 years too late. So how did they punish murderers before that? Well, it was by oral tradition. Really? Show me that in the Word of God. Those pagan nations, God never sent one bit of light to them, either by oral tradition or by written Scripture. I want you to think about what we're, what we're going to encounter. To do those things which are not convenient. God gives men over so that even their natural restraint, which shows up from time to time in their laws, shows up from time to time in some of them, is reduced. So that they rush into these sins. And we know that we've rushed into them ourselves. Convenient. I'm not going to take you on... The outline for this chapter is now approaching 50 pages. There is plenty for you to study if you want to go further, like on the word convenient, what it means in the English language, where it's found in the Bible, and what it means by cross-references. But I don't want to do that this morning. I want to get in to this list of 23 crimes. You may be reviled by the thought of sodomy, either socially or personally. But you better recognize when we get through this passage that you're just as guilty. The Lord, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has a wonderful way of setting you up in this passage. He brings up sodomy first, so that you're despising sodomites in verses 24 through 27. But then he lists 23 crimes, and he doesn't make any distinction. He says uh, they're all inconvenient. They're all unnatural. It's unnatural for a child to disobey his parents. Parents in parents came together to form a child. They, they birthed that little brat. They cut its cord. They clothed it. They put diapers on it. They wiped its little butt about ten times a day. They bide a tricycle. They helped the little moron figure out how to suck something up a straw so that it can drink a McDonald's milkshake. They give it a hamburger. They buy it candy. They give it birthday presents. They buy it a glove. They drive it to Little League Baseball. And they do all these things for it. And then it rebels against them? You explain to me how sodomy is as bad as that. Right. Explain to me. That is inconvenient. That's a disruption of society. The first authority structure we meet with in life is being a child. Think about it. The Lord can't understand it. Do you know what the Lord thought of disobedience to parents? Kill them. Do you know what the Lord thought about speaking lightly about your parents? Kill them. You say, where is that taught in the Bible? Have you read your Bible? Deuteronomy 27, verse 16. Whoso setteth light by his mother or his father... Let him be cursed. 
And all the people shall say, Amen. amen. That's all. I didn't ask you to say Amen. I'm telling you, that's what the Bible says. All the people were supposed to say Amen to that. It's the height of rebellion. It's the height of arrogance for you ever to disobey your parents. They have forgotten ten times what you've ever learned. They've experienced more than you can even imagine. Their life experiences are beyond the scope of your imagination and fantasy mind. They have been punished and they're trying to save you from pain. They have been rewarded and they're trying to teach you prosperity. And you want to do things your own way? The point I'm trying to make right now is it is as inconvenient as sodomy. Do you get the message about why the Bible says to do those things which are not convenient? The things that are contrary to nature, the things that unsettle society, the things that mess up life and how good it could be. Those parents that loved and helped you when you were a little running. Listen, you had green snakes running out of your nose. And if they ran, if those snakes wiggled far enough, you would lick them. If we didn't strap a diaper on you, you would eat your dung. And you want to tell a parent that you're going to live a different way? It's as inconvenient as you can get. And so are the rest of these sins. Oh, the Lord set us up. We're kind of rubbing our hands. Those faggots in verses 24 through 27. I know where I know where sodomy comes from. The Lord's got the last laugh on them. All these foolish ideas that men have of where sodomy comes from, it comes from God. And we, we start to swell and get puffed up in our self-righteousness. And then he, he, he lists 23 other sins that he calls inconvenient and contrary to nature. And, and you can just hear the handcuffs handcuffing you, your hands behind your back and manacling your feet together. And then he just tosses you into the lake of fire because these things are worthy of death. And we have done them willfully. We've done them presumptuously. We have, we have rejected the knowledge of God and we've been taught so much more than the heathen because we've been taught by the word of God and we still sin, showing the depravity of the human race. But thanks be to God. Today is a day for us to tremble, but it's a day for us to rejoice because Jesus Christ faced every one of those. You know, I've already told you once in the sight of God, I am as obedient to my parents as Jesus Christ was to his. And the difference between the two is uh, light and darkness, holiness and wickedness. The difference But I'm clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we want to get that, but we want to examine ourselves. Are there any disobedient children still among us? Humble yourself and repent. You're worse than a sodomite. Or you're equal to a sodomite if you think I'm pushing it too far. I, I really, when I think about it, they are certainly inconvenient. This is Romans 1, 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, have you ever forgotten and intentionally chosen to go against the knowledge of God that you were taught earlier in your life? If you have ever done that, then you deserve the middle clause of verse 28. God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. When God gives you over to a reprobate mind, you go against nature because your mind is utterly abandoned. It will do anything. And we're all capable of doing anything if God turns us over to that reprobate mind. So we come to the 29th verse. Before I get there, just one more thought, please. I've got 20 here that I'm trying to pick and choose from for your good. Here's a couple more thoughts. First, God doesn't ever make anyone sin. These verses, when it says God gives them over, 24, 26, 28, that God gives them over, he doesn't make anyone sin. James 1, 13 through 16 tells us that very plainly. My brethren, don't let any man charge God with turning you over to sin. God can't be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is drawn away of his own lust. Then when lust hath conceived, bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. I did not preach that God makes men sin. God gives men over to the sins they love. He can restrain those sins. He can keep up some natural resistance against them, but He gives men over when they rebel against enough of His knowledge. The second thing I'd like to say here before we go into verse 29 is that from God's legal and righteous viewpoint, 
you must not think that the sins in this list that we're about to enter are different from sodomy because the Bible says that if we sin in one point of the law, we're guilty of all. That doesn't mean that if you sin by lying, that you're guilty of stealing. It means if you sin by lying, you are worthy and under the punishment that would come for any of the other sins or all of the other sins. Because one sin against an infinitely holy God is an infinitely holy crime and holy, an infinitely great crime and deserving of infinite punishment. Are you with me? So I want you to understand how the Lord has set us up. And while we start to get puffed up in self-righteousness, I'd never do that one. Yeah. Well, he's got 23 more. And as I finished two weeks ago, I showed you from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that there were washed, sanctified, and justified sodomites in the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 tells us that. Right. Into verse 29. Here we go. Being filled with all. This is the general condition of unregenerate Gentiles. It's not one of careful, moderate sinning. It's being filled with all because God's given over so that even natural restraint of some orderliness is lost at times by men that God has given over. And most of the Gentile nations, he's given over. They're filled with these sins. Paul would describe it in Ephesians chapter 4, that their hearts are hardened and they greedily pursue the sins that we're about to read of. Someone says, don't you believe in the goodness of man? Our answer, no, we don't. Where did you get such an idea? The goodness of man. No, we don't. Because chapter 3 tells us in verses 9 through 18 of this book, it just describes how wicked man is. The Bible says there is none that doeth good. No, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. God is not in all their thoughts. Paul would say, in my flesh there dwelleth a few good things. He says, there dwelleth no good thing. No, we don't believe in the goodness of man. We believe in the goodness of God. When Jesus heard the words by a man addressing him, good master, what did he do? He immediately turned those words and asked that man if he was wanting to publicly declare that he was God. I'm telling you the lesson there, because God is the only one that is good. Good master? You're right. Do you know what you're saying? Jesus was the only one that was good because he was God. There's no goodness in man. When they do something that appears good, they're doing it out of an evil motive. Pride is an evil motive. Pride ruins anything you do. In fact, let's just get right down to it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the first three verses, it says, If I give all my goods to feed the poor. Now that is really nice. Who was the last person you met that sold everything they owned and gave it to the poor? If you did that, and then you gave your body to be burned, you were a martyr. But you did not love people by forgiving them when they offended you. And you spoke evil about other people and thought evil of their actions and put an evil construction on what they were doing. I'm referring to verses 4 through 7 in that chapter. Then everything you did in that third verse is utterly worthless in the sight of God. Being filled with all unrighteousness. What is unrighteousness? It's not measuring up to the holy standard of God's rule for conduct. Unrighteous. It's not right. It's not just. It's not measuring up to, or conforming to God's standard of conduct. Righteousness is thinking or speaking or acting in a way that is right by God's definition. Unrighteousness is thinking or speaking or acting in a way that is not right or righteous by God's definition of that term. We've all come short of the glory of God. We don't measure up to His standard. And so the first thing that the Apostle gives us is this broad category of being filled with all unrighteousness. Everything God expects of us, we come short of the standard. When the Bible says, Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Oh, did you have to make it so high of a standard, Lord? When the Bible says to men, Whoso looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart, why did you have to set the standard so high? When the Bible says to men, 
Let her be, your wife, as the loving hind and pleasant roe, a little pet deer, a gentle, delicate, tender, beautiful little thing whose little hearts pitter-pattering, and you should be taking great care of it. Let her be unto thee as the loving hind and pleasant roe. Let her breast satisfy thee at all times, and be thou ravished always with her love. Oh, Lord, why did you set the standard so high? So that I can show you you need a Savior. And when you get a Savior, I'll give you some rules on how to have a perfect marriage. Because if a man would keep Colossians 3.19, which I've quoted, and Proverbs 5.19, which I've quoted, he could have a great marriage. So there's benefit in the Word of God, but what a standard he has set. And when you're unrighteous, you just don't get there. Unrighteousness is not meeting the standard of God's measure of performance. Have you ever rolled your eyes at your parents? Have you ever rolled your eyes at your parents? Have you ever stomped off and tossed your head? Have you ever slammed a door? Do you know what the Bible says about you? The Bible says about you that you ought to be tied down out in a hot place on your back so that he can send his ravens and his eagles to come down and rip your eyeballs out for having ever rolled your eyeballs at your parents. You say, that's not in the Bible. What do you think I'm quoting? The Koran? You know, I didn't hear that verse enough when I was young. I needed to watch MTV when I was younger and have some teenager stretched out there with an eagle or a raven ripping its eyeballs out. I might have been a better son. I think I would have. Just telling you about it sounds pretty bad. Have you ever watched an eagle rip apart something? It's got a decent-sized little beak. That's the Lord, the way, that's the word picture He wants you to have. So that's what He thinks about you when you roll your eyes at your parents. Well, I rolled them in the privacy of my bedroom. (laughs) Precious. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. You haven't gone anywhere. He knows what you say. He knows when you curse your parents in your bedroom. And He's going to rip you apart for it. You say, well, I know somebody who's cursed their parents and they haven't ripped apart yet. That's why he hasn't ripped them apart yet. Just so that you would talk like that, so he can rip them and you apart. Are you that stupid? Do you think the Bible's not true? That's the reason why he's holding off. He wants you to think that you can get away with it, so he can rip you both apart. That is the truth. You say, that's not in the Bible. Yeah. Last four verses of Psalm 50. Enjoy them. Unrighteousness. Have you ever have you ever failed to measure up to God's righteous standard in any duty? The human race is condemned, brethren. But Jesus Christ, everything He did was perfectly righteous. Everything Jesus ever said, every every thought He ever had, everything He ever did, measured all the way up to the perfect standard of that God had set over Israel for a man. And Jesus did it all. And I've got it all. For he hath made him, this is the Bible, he, God, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Isn't that wonderful? We don't measure up. So we're filled with all unrighteousness because everything you do doesn't quite get there. But by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you try to do it, God sanctifies it the rest of the way. We'll never stand in our righteousness, but we can stand in His. How righteous are you in your marriage? Your employment, your finances, your thoughts, your fantasies, your church duties. How, uh, how do you measure up? You know, once we realize that this verse is to condemn the Gentiles, we then want to get the practical lesson, Lord, I can do better. I can do better by measuring up to your standard. And that's, we want to get all this. We want to get the fact that Jesus kept this perfectly. We want to get the fact that we are condemned totally by these 23 crimes. But we also want to examine ourselves, which one can I do better in? Now, unrighteousness is pretty big. Every duty in your life. Do you honor your parents? Do you talk to your parents? Do you open up and tell your parents what you're thinking about? Do you thank your parents? Do you treat your parents in a special way so that they know that you appreciate all that they've done for you? The Bible tells you to do that. Do you, how do you measure up to that? 
I need to take a break right now and just go do a little bit of it myself. You're going to have to wait till later, Dad. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. When was the last time you thanked your parents for everything good they've done for you? You said, I don't have good parents. Well, you're just, listen, you're guilty of all 23 crimes right now, so I have nothing else to say to you today. The fact that they brought you in this world and ever put a diaper on you is more than you deserved. Right. Listen, you were so stupid you pooped on yourself. If they ever put a diaper on you, it was an act of kindness. They were keeping you from eating it because you thought it was a Tootsie Roll. And you have to be a parent to appreciate what I'm saying. Am I telling the truth, parents? Am I, Amen. We have to restrain them. Brethren, this is the God of heaven. He addresses children. He addresses parents. He addresses husbands. He addresses wives. He addresses all of us. And he says they're filled with unrighteousness. And they know that by the way they live, never measuring up to my standard, that I'm going to punish them, and the punishment is death. And they go ahead and do it anyway, and they take pleasure in other people not living up to that standard. Do you know what kind of friends you want? You want to find friends that live up to the standard of righteousness as closely as they can, and you want to hang around them so that they and you together can help each other measure up as closely as you can to the standard of God's conduct in all areas of life, because that's righteousness. We have got to move on. The second command... The second crime. There's so much more that can be said about unrighteousness. Does the Bible have anything to say about unrighteousness? You know it does. But I have to leave. We have to go to the next crime. Fornication. What's the sin? Voluntary sexual intercourse or heavy foreplay between two people who are not married to each other. What is fornication? It's a large category of sexual sins that include adultery, sodomy, and foreplay. What's foreplay? It's touching each other in intimate ways that belong only in marriage. It's fornication, the Bible. You say, prove it that it's fornication, the Bible. Go read Ezekiel 16 and verse 23. It will talk about pressing breasts of virginity. Do you understand? That's called whoredom in the Bible. Pressing breasts while you keep a girl a virgin. Fornication. It's listed here. It's worthy of death. Other Bible terms are filthiness, uncleanness, chambering, whoremonger, and adultery. Since adultery is not in the list, we use the, we use the definition for fornication that's broad. You, the, the, the limited definition of fornication is two unmarried people doing it before they're married. The broad definition of fornication is any sexual sin that you don't have a right to. It's a big definition. And the Bible uses it in both ways. The Bible includes incest as fornication. The Bible includes sodomy as fornication in specific passages. God condemns fornication. Our nation no longer does it. Much could be said here. This is part of our sanctification as Christians. But the world doesn't care. The world calls it casual sex today. I wonder how casual the punishment's going to be. This is how casual it was in the Bible. Casual sex. A man marries a woman. After he's married her, he he starts accusing her that she wasn't a virgin when he married her. That becomes public knowledge that this man is accusing his wife that she wasn't a virgin when he married her. The elders of the city come and get the father of that girl and say, do you have the tokens of her virginity? Do you have the proof that that girl was a virgin when she married this guy who's bringing up an evil name on her? If the father can't produce the tokens of virginity in Deuteronomy chapter 22, girl's dead. Because she had casual sex one time before she married someone else. Dead. You say, God thinks about sex that seriously? Yes, He does. Being a virgin when you get married is mocked today. Mocked. Made fun of. Every one of you girls that's a virgin intends to be a virgin when you get married... May the God of heaven bless you and make you great in this earth. May he give you a loving husband and may you have a wonderful marriage together because of the way you're starting. The human race is condemned. They call it casual sex. If, if, our, if, if men don't commit this sin, now think with me. Remember what the Bible teaches. The thought of foolishness is sin. The thought of fornication is fornication. Right. The human race is condemned for if they're not committing the sin, they wish they were committing it, or they're watching others do it for entertainment, or they're choosing friends from those that do it. So you're dead by Romans 1.32. You say, why is God so harsh about sex? It's a lot of fun. Because He's preserving 
you for your marriage. And he's preserving the other person for their marriage. So that there's not memories. There's not conflict. There's not wickedness. You have followed his due order for marriage. Fornication. The world's guilty of it. Next one is wickedness. Wickedness is worse than unrighteousness. Unrighteousness is not measuring up to God's standard. Wickedness is just loving evil. Because they're both in the list, we want to look for little shades of difference between the two, since they're both right there. Is a synonym for unrighteousness wickedness? Is a synonym for wickedness unrighteousness? Yes. But when they're both in the same list, and you look to see in the Bible, is there any difference between the use of them? Yes, there is. Unrighteousness is not getting up to God's standards. Wickedness is worse. Wickedness is just depraved evil and loving to do it. Not not just coming short of God. It's going in the other direction, intentionally and consciously. Wickedness. Bad in moral character, disposition or conduct, inclined or addicted to willful wrongdoing, practicing or disposed to practice evil, morally depraved. A term of wide application, but always of strong reprobation. This is our Oxford English Dictionary. The Oxford English Dictionary is the only dictionary to... By the way, I have an extra copy of the Oxford English Dictionary. I might even have two extra copies of it. You know, when you go to the library and you look for the Oxford English Dictionary, it's not this little dinky Webster's thing. You know, this little dinky Webster's thing is worse than a Reader's Digest condensed book. You know. When you can measure something in two or three inches, it's not a dictionary. It's not a very good dictionary. The Oxford English Dictionary is 20 volumes, and each volume is something that you would need help with carrying. It's a big book, and there's 20 of them. But the Oxford English Dictionary says about the English word wickedness, a term of wide application, but always of strong reprobation. I wonder where they got that word from. Terrible, implying a high degree of evil quality. That's what the Bible says. God judged the world with a flood because he looked down upon them and it says they were wicked and because all the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. All the imaginations of men's hearts was evil continually, so God drowned the earth with a flood. In Genesis chapter 6 verse 5, he said that they were wicked because they had corrupted His way on the earth. God has a way of doing things. And when you corrupt that way, you are wicked. Corrupted. I mean, turn it upside down. Do you know what one of the ways of God was? Leading up to Genesis chapter 6 and stated in the first few verses of chapter 6. You will only marry in the Lord. But the sons of God started marrying the daughters of men. And God destroyed the earth with a flood because they had corrupted His way on the earth. God hates a believer marrying an unbeliever. It's one of the greatest sins in the Bible. It is such a corruption for you to go to bed with an unbeliever. For you to have children with an unbeliever. You should be both dedicated, committed Christians to live a holy life. That's the foundation for a family. By God's Word. Wickedness. Paul condemned Simon the sorcerer for his profanity as wickedness. What was Simon the sorcerer's sin? He saw Peter being able to give the gift of the Holy Ghost, and he wanted to buy that gift. That's not unrighteousness, not measuring up to God's standard. That's just profane evil that you would want to buy the gift of God for money. And that's what Peter said to him. That he was a very wicked man, and the devil had him under his control, and that he better beg God for mercy to be delivered from him. Wickedness. The next one is covetousness before we take our break. Covetousness. What is covetousness? It's the desire for things that don't belong to you or that you don't have a right to. You can admire what somebody else has, but you better not desire it. Unless that's a very moderate desire that of something that you are allowed to have by God's grace and that you're going to work hard and save some money. You know, that's, that's a nice thing. I'd like to have that thing myself. That's, that's allowable. That's the motive for why we work. But to desire it, let it eat at you so that you're discontent with your life or so that you would think of stealing or so that you would think of not saving your money because you've got to have this thing. You're covetous. When you see some new thing come out, some new television, some new iPhone, some new computer, some new car, some new gun, some new house, some new thing come out and it just eats at you so that you're discontent with what you have. You are guilty of covetousness. Covetousness is a terrible sin in the Bible. Covetousness is called idolatry in the Bible. 
Colossians 3.5, Ephesians 5.5. Twice, covetousness is called idolatry. Now, you would never catch me, unless you give me over to a reprobate mind, you would never catch me worshiping an idol. But have I ever desired something that belonged to someone else and I don't have a right to? Is the Pope a Catholic? Yes, I have, and I just, I just went ahead and used me for you. It's idolatry. Do you know why it's idolatry? Because you make something more important than the God who gave you everything you have. Do you know how much you deserve? Nothing. Right. Do you know what he's given you? More than tongue can hardly tell. Right. We live in the greatest generation of the greatest nation in the history of the world. Covetousness. It's one of the most universal sins. Yet we need to consider it in its nature and its effects to fully expose its horrible evil. Covetousness is discontentment. And when you are discontent, you are in rebellion and resentment against the God that made the choices for your life. When you wish you were as pretty as someone else, when you wish you were as smart as someone else, and when you envy them, it's going to run into other sins. You are discontent with what, how God made you and what He gave you. It's horrible. It's idolatry, and the Bible calls it that. It's discontentment, because you're not happy and content with what God's given. It can be hatred, because you'll start resenting other people who have it, and you'll think you deserve it more than they do. Covetousness. We're supposed to learn to be content. It's the greatest rule for success. Do you want to learn about how to be successful in life? It's 1 Timothy 6.6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. That is an axiom for success and prosperity in this world. Godliness plus contentment equals great gain. That man is far ahead of every other man. He's godly so that God is pleased with him and blessing him, and other men bless him and love him, and he is content so he's always happy and fulfilled and satisfied with life. That is as good as it gets. Godliness with contentment equals great gain. 1 Timothy 6.6. 6. It's such a short verse, such a powerful lesson to us. But does the world start have either of them? Do we by nature have either of them? We're ungodly and discontent equals great sin. And if you don't like what God gave you, you are a wicked rebel. He gave you more than you deserved. That's right. Children covet the toys of their siblings. Nations covet the territory or natural resources of other nations. What did covetousness cause Ahab and Jezebel to do? Kill a righteous man for his vineyard. They were the king and queen of Israel. Did they have vineyards? Could they have more vineyards? What did covetousness cause David to do? Take another man's wife. Did he have a whole harem of women? Yes, he did. Could he have had more women if he'd have gone to the Lord and said, I need another half dozen? The Lord would have given them to him. The Bible tells us that. Rather than committing adultery. Contentment is learned behavior, and we want to learn it. Philippians 4.11 says, Paul said, I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. So godliness with contentment equals great gain. Everyone here can go out of here today and be a great winner. You can succeed in life. You can be happy for the rest of your life by being content with what you have. Since I've already admitted that I I haven't always been content, let me tell you on something I am pretty much content with. Although I... Oh, but... Once in a while I admire another. I'm content with my Jeep. It's It's old. It shakes, it squeaks, it does stuff that I wish it wouldn't do. It, the windshield wipers make me leave me looking through water. It's just pitiful. But it saves me money. And, I, and I'm content with it. It gets me from, it gets me dry. It's dry. The windshield isn't dry. But it, we need to be content. Right. It saves me a lot of grief. Yeah, there's another car that I'm thinking about. But I'm only admiring it. I'm not desiring it, and I'm not going to break any of God's rules to get it. And it's what we need to learn to do about everything in life. Brethren, we've got to learn it. Hebrews 13.5 says, Let your conversation, let your lifestyle, conversation in the Bible, King James Bible, is lifestyle. Let your lifestyle be... 
Hold on. I am not content with losing my memory because it's my fault. It will soon not be my fault. It's the fault of sin. Hebrews 13.5 Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. If you have God with you, why do you need stuff? If you have God with you, why do you need a different wife, another wife, or a better husband? You have the Lord with you. Contentment is the opposite of covetousness. We're going through a list of 23 crimes. The human race is condemned, and we need a Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ was never covetous. He was content. And do you know what he was content with? Nothing in this world. Nothing. He said the foxes have places to lay their heads, but the Son of Man doesn't. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And you know what he got to look forward to his entire life? I get to die in a false trial and be crucified after being scourged. Was he content with that life? He, was, he set his face to do it. His whole life he was moving toward Jerusalem. His whole life he was ready to do that. He was content. He wasn't covetous. He knew that God had promised him something in heaven, so he didn't care about the things on earth. And God's promised us the same things. Isn't it in Psalm 16 where he says that there are pleasures forevermore at thy right hand, so I have set you always before my face? Is that what he says in Psalm 16? Is that what ought to affect us so that we're content with our things? We're not by nature, but we can be by our spiritual new man. This is the word of the Lord. Unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness. The human race stands condemned. We need to examine ourselves. Am I as righteous as I could be and should be? Do I hate fornication like I should, like David did in Psalm 101? Do I hate wickedness, and am I keeping it out of my life? Do I, do I avoid any wickedness on television or anywhere else? And, am I fighting against covetousness by choosing to be content with what God's given me? That's what we need to take from these verses so far. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.